over a decade of experience in video games, and all he has to show for it is this stupid podcast. It's Behind the Line Radio, with your host, Kinetic, and it starts now. Hello everyone, and welcome back to Behind the Line Radio. This week, I have Bill joining me again, and we are going to be discussing something that uh, he actually brought up to me directly uh, after going through her story and the Stanley Parable. Uh, had more stuff to say on the topic of, you know, narrative conveyance in video games. So, Bill, welcome. Thank you. How are you doing today? Not too bad. And yourself? I'm okay. So, um, you're the one who brought up the topic. Do you have any opening statements you'd like to make? <laughs> Sorry well, to put you on the spot there. But. No, it wasn't just the Stanley Parable, though. It was also, um, and I'm not going to remember the name of it again. Oh, uh, The Beginner's Guide. The Beginner's, the Beginner's Guide. Guide. You're right. That's the one that really made me start thinking about this, because you showed me that one first, The Beginner's Guide, and then I played The Stanley Parable, and these were both after having played her story. And I thought that The Beginner's Guide was interesting because it almost felt like I'm not sure exactly where to start with my comments on this, but what I'm where I'm going to start with is having played the Stanley Parable afterwards. The Stanley Parable is actually far more entertaining than the Beginner's Guide. The Beginner's Guide, there's not a lot to do, and it leaves you wondering why you didn't just write a story mm. at the end of it, right? Like, yeah. Oh, I, I continue. And so by the end of it, you know. Sure, you might have an unreliable narrator situation going on and things like that and developments that you're discovering about the characters that you're dealing with, of which there are only two. Well, three, if you count yourself as a character. But that's something that could happen in a book or in a story or, I mean, it didn't need the process of a video game. And what it made me wonder about is if the author of the video game isn't trying to develop something that they haven't quite gotten to yet, you know, because the do you Stanley mean, do you mean the actual game um, in the Stanley parable and the beginner's guide, or do you mean like Coda's games within the beginner's guide? Well, within, with the beginner's guide, I'm talking about the, I'm talking about the creator of the beginner's guide. Okay. The, the, what was it? Unlimited games limited or something like that. Okay, it's a, the, it's a, the, I just wanted to clarify that because we're talking about a game that is about little game mini games, games. Yes. so it gets a little meta, I just want to make sure our, our context is clear. No, I'm not talking about the interior of the games at all at the moment. I'm talking about the, uh, uh, well, the next level up, which is the design of the games themselves. Right. And it makes me wonder if the designers of the Beginner's Guide aren't in a situation where they're trying to push the envelope of what narrative structure is in a video game, but this isn't the next, this isn't the complete next step. I like the idea of being in a video game where you have an unreliable narrator, right? Yeah. And a, a narrator who isn't necessarily giving you is giving you everything through their own lens, at which point you have to start interpreting things. Great. But the problem with the beginner's guide is there's really nothing to interpret. You go from what you go from point A to point B, and that's it. And everything that's really that you can learn is contained in the narration. Mm-hmm. 
There's okay. nothing. There's nothing that you find that you can discover on your own. Her story, everything's contained in the quote-unquote narration, absolutely. But you have to find it. Mm-hmm. You because, have to because her it story ha- is that whole uh, searching of a video database, and you have to put your own stuff together. And that one actually, I would also point out that her story, we discussed it when we were talking about the game. There was some room for interpretation there. Yes, absolutely. And and that's part of what they did in terms of what videos they produced and how they put them together and all that, you know, the the statements being made, which was really quite fun. But in um, the beginner's guide, you, you really don't have it. There, you, there's almost no choices for the player to make. It's very much a guided tour, the beginner's guide. There's, exactly. there's, you can... The player can make a choice to pay attention to more, but you are kind of being forced from one place to another. Exactly. And at that point, is it really a game? And that's the that's the question that's being posed by the game, what a game consists of. Mm-hmm. But I think there's a better I think there's a better structure that you can put it inside. Ye- true. Uh I, I I am someone who thinks that um the definition, our kind of understanding or definition of video game needs to be a bit broader because there are, there are video games where it's, you know, you have an objective to accomplish. There are video games where there is a competition and there is a winner. There are video games that are, um, not exactly combative or competitive, but there is a storyline. There are video games that are just sandbox toys. There's no object, like, if you're going to complain about these, uh, you know, uh, narrative-driven games, are you in turn going to complain about, say, Mario Paint? Uh, Mario Paint doesn't have a narrative; it doesn't have an objective. Uh, but you are, but you get the chance to create stuff. Yeah, I mean, so you don't get the chance it, to create anything. In- is it a game? Is it a toy? Is it a tool? There's a lot of. And I don't think I don't think there's anything wrong with the uh, creating a game that's more of a toy or a tool. But this is basically, by the end of The Beginner's Guide, my thought was, I could have read this in a 20-page story. <laughs> I mean, it takes, it takes how long does it take to go to through The Beginner's Guide? It takes a long time. It takes, an hour, I think? Yeah, at least, depending on how much you explore, because there are portions of it that you can explore. For quite some time. For quite some time. Yeah, the, that little segment where you're looking at uh, other people's comments. Like, if you actually wanted to go through and read all of them, you could... And it would take forever. And some of the comments are interesting, but nothing in the course of that story that you're basically reading in the beginner's guide is as fun or entertaining or interesting as in the Henry Parable. The Stanley Parable. Stanley Parable, whatever. <laughs> I cannot remember the names of these games for the life of me. And I think I think that means something that I cannot remember the names of these games. The Stanley Parable, I at least remember parable because that's a funny word and it has a relationship to what's going on in that game, mm. which is you're, there's a narrator, right, who is telling you, almost telling you what to do, but you can't choose not to. And then the narrator makes comments on it, yeah. you know, and that is hilarious when the narrator is commenting on what you have chosen in the context of the story that the narrator is trying to tell. It becomes really funny and it's really entertaining. Yeah. Whereas when all the narrator is saying is, oh, and by the way, here's a puzzle. 
Let me mm-hmm. tell you how the puzzle is solved, and we're going to see this puzzle again. And I'm also going to tell you how I interpret this. It and is. It it doesn't leave a lot in the uh, the beginner's guide. It doesn't leave a whole lot open for the player to interpret for themselves. And there's nothing particularly compelling about either the interpretation that the narrator offers or the bind that the narrator finds themselves in later on in the game. Mm-hmm. You don't, because I mean, the whole point of the beginner's guide is trying to figure out the sort of get into the mind of the creator of these mini video games, Coda, because Coda, the narrator is quote unquote concerned about Coda because Coda hasn't produced any video games in a while. Right. Yeah. Like, well, or at least hasn't the, shared them, but whatever. Well, by the end of the video game, by the end of going through with them all, you're like, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's, that's how I felt. I was like, I don't care anymore because wh- they're not interesting. And you've, you've taken any interest they could have had and squeezed it out of them by giving me an interpretation that I'm not interested in and proving that you're an unreliable narrator who I am also not interested in. <laughs> in my, that, that's my interpretation. Other people might find it really engaging to sort of explore that, that relationship between what the narrator is saying and what the narrator is actually reporting on. But hmm. by the end of it, like you had comments about it that I was like, yeah, sure, whatever, but I don't care. Because by the end of it, the, the the longer I've thought about it, the more angry I am at that game, actually. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, why? Why did you do this? Now, if their one point was, we want you to be thinking about the nature of narrative in video games, okay, good job. You did it. I think you could have done it faster. <laughs> I think you could have done it more efficiently, and I think you could have done it in a more interesting, in a more interesting format that, I mean, the Stanley Parable foregrounds the idea of, idea of narrative in the video game in a, in a lot of ways as well, but it's extremely entertaining. As and that game is frustrating too because you can't get anywhere. Mm-hmm. Like you, that's part of the point of the Stanley Parable is that Stanley can't get anywhere. Mm-hmm. He's stuck, and you are Stanley, so you are stuck, and there's no winning. <laughs> There is no, it's just like we're walking around and looking. Yeah. But the narrator is constantly going, making, well, making snide remarks and, you know, commenting on the choices that you're making. And <laughs> that's a lot of fun. It's almost like the, uh, the narrator is an antagonist in the game. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, the great thing about the Stanley parable is at the beginning, the narrator says things. And those are the only things that you can do for the first, like, 25 seconds or minute or two of the game. And then I love the first moment of choice, which is Stanley came to two doors. He took the door on the right. But you, as the player, are looking at two doors, and there's a door on the left that you can take. Yeah. That is that is awesome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and it's just really beautiful because from that moment on, you are now in a situation where you are at odds with the narrator or not you can continue to make interesting and bizarre choices and who knows where you're going to go now nothing happens in that game that is revolutionary or or makes you go oh my god you know aliens don't come down there aren't Mm -hmm. even any other characters other than stanley that you ever see i don't think uh not active i mean there's little references here and there to what might be other people but they might also just be pranks 
you end up in somebody else's office at some point and things yeah. like that. But there's no other characters that you yeah. see. And, and the only characters are basically you, Stanley, and the narrator. And that narrator is interesting. <laughs> as he opposed, does... as opposed to the narrator of, uh, the beginner's guide. Exactly. And that's the thing that I think is most frustrating about the beginner's guide is because, okay, it's supposed to be about games and somebody who makes them. First of all, the vast majority of the things that you walk through aren't really games. They're, I mean, they are literally like the character, some of them are the character walks you walk for X amount of time and then there's a sign. <laughs> you know, that's not a game, is it? Do you think that's a game? I, I, I wouldn't say so, but I do think that some of the point in the beginner's guide is to raise that question of what you would consider a game. I mean, that's some of the, the interaction with the narrator was him trying to say, no, your game has to have an objective. It has to have a point and Coda not necessarily agreeing. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, I can understand that. I mean, you can make a meta comment about this that, um, the same observation applies to the beginner's guide itself. I mean, it doesn't, in, in that classic sense, it doesn't have an objective. It doesn't have a point. I mean, if you wanted to start reading between the lines, you could say that Coda's philosophies on game making had rubbed off on the narrator, but, you know, the, the, well, the narrator also presents it more as, uh, you know, um, I'm releasing Coda's work for a thing just to try to get attention. So. Well, here's the thing that I think is sort of essential is that the narrator, the narrative doesn't make that clear enough that there's the, that there's that conflict. If you, because now you're also getting stuck in what is the point of, I mean, what is the nature of narrative, not just narrative in video games, right? Right. Because, you know, if you go back to just the classics, what is a story? You have your introduction, you have your conflict, you have your resolution, you know, all that good stuff. Well, the conflict and the conflict isn't, conflict isn't very clear in the beginner's guide. Yeah. The, the, the other game that I can't remember the name of. <laughs> um, <laughs> It's it, it, yes, there's a stated conflict by the narrator. Hey, he stopped releasing games and I'm concerned and I want to figure out what's going on. Sure. The, and then later on, there's a stated conflict between the narrator and his interpretation versus Coda's interpretation. So uh, before we get any further, I, I do want to throw this out there to make sure it's in, in the audio and I'm going to put a tag in this in the description. As we go further into this, this is going to be, again, Hero Talk Rules spoiler alerts. So uh, whatever we haven't already spoiled in the Stanley Parable and uh, uh, the Beginner's Guide and more more titles are going to come up later, I'm sure. Just uh, um, if you don't want something spoiled, and I'm not exactly sure what titles are going to come up later, but if you don't want something spoiled, uh, you can see the list of, of uh, what we bring up in the description below. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, proceed with caution. Everything's on the table. Again, same rules as Hero Talk. So, yeah, I just wanted to get that out there. Um, make sure I didn't forget. So, uh, sorry for interrupting. <laughs> Continue, Phil. No so, but now you're in that situation where the character, you know, doesn't really have the narrative narrator character. There's not a clear conflict 
in that narrative. Um, there's a couple of muddy conflicts, or at least from my interpret my experience of the story. Now, admittedly, also by the time the more interesting portions of what could have been the conflict had come up, I was kind of bored. I was mm. like, yeah, whatever. I don't, I don't, I'm not interested in you. I'm not interested in Kokoda. I don't know. You're not really friends, so I don't know why you're concerned. Um, <laughs> Kokoda uh, certainly didn't consider him a friend anymore. Well, exactly. So it's like, if, if, if is this a story about the, is this a, a cautionary tale about self-aggrandizement? Is this, uh, is this, you know, hey, leave well enough alone? Is this, you know, is there a moral to this? Is there a point? And by the end, I also didn't really care. But your narrative, if you're going to play those games, the thing about her story that was so wonderful is there were so many disparate elements that they brought together in the narrative snippets that you got. So you would get things about fairy tales and you got things about mirrors and you got things about, you know, you name it. It all sort of would be this mishmash of stuff that you'd be looking for and finding and, oh, interesting. And the more you discovered, the more interesting it became. This, Mm -hmm. the more you discovered, the less interesting it became. Mm Mm-hmm. I, I, I can see that where her story has a lot of little branching paths that you can follow through with reasoning and so forth. And, and actually I would say the nature of the presentation of her story not only encourages, but almost forces you to go down all those little paths as you're trying mm-hmm. to figure out what's going on or, you know, in the meta narrative of her story, why are you looking at this in the first place? Right. Um, where and uh, the Stanley parable maybe less so than her story but it still has many overt branching paths that you can experience well and the thing about the Stanley parable is each path that you experience has its own minor reward because mm-hmm. the narrator says something about it yeah and the narrator that was written well in that there's a dichot there's a conflict between you and the narrator and the reward or the resolution is basically what the narrator says. And that's, <laughs> that's, and it's each time it happens that, that the narrator makes some snarky comment about you, quote, or Stanley, that's your reward. It's mm-hmm. how many snarky comments can I get? Out of the <laughs> I mean, that's the fun of that game. And the, um, the, and that's another thing where, um, uh, even performances, because I would say that the performance in her story, the performance of the narrator in the Stanley parable, uh, those were both better than the performance of the narrator in uh, the beginner's guide. Well, and that's in part because the, that's what was requested of that performance. All they wanted was, I am now telling you this. I am um, now telling you that. Well, if if you let that performer have a slightly different take, like getting more desperate or getting more, you know, just having a more emotional interpretation, a more emotional investment in the things that he is saying, then you are at least driven to find out what the heck is going on. Like if the second or third game you go through, he has some sort of emotional, weird emotional response, then you want to find out why. Mm-hmm. So you think a, a, um, do you think it would be there, – there is room for a different performance in the Beginner's Guide to have elevated the material to have improved that game by that alone? Uh, I don't think the material as written merited a different performance. 
okay. think they would have had to have rewrite the material as well. Okay. Because what's written, and it's been a while since I played the beginner's guide, but what's written is it's very basic and straightforward. And, and that could be their, again, that could be their point. Like, it, like you, you said, the whole point of the games that Coda created is what is a game? Great. Interesting as a brain exercise, but not as a game. If you want to make it interesting as a game, the games have to, the games that Coda creates that you're going to have your player walk through have to have more interesting variations. Um, there has to be, there has to be more challenge. The narrator has to do things that are different to you as the player. Like, here's another thing that they could have written into the game. So there's a there's a repeat, repeating puzzle that that is in a lot of the coded games, and the narrator walks you through it. Well, wouldn't it be more interesting if the narrator abandoned you and you had to somehow get the narrator back, or if you did something and pissed the narrator off and they said, you know, I don't agree with you, I don't agree with what you're thinking about this game, I'm out of here. All right, I'm and now you had to do something to get them back mm-hmm. because that. One thing that does is it highlights the fact that the narrator is unreliable. It highlights the fact that what they're interpreting, how they're interpreting things may not be the actual truth. It then gets you searching for information underneath the surface of what the narrator is saying. But the thing is, there is no real – there's not really information underneath the surface of what they've written for that narrator in that game. I see. So you would it, it you would want in that game uh, – like a more a better performance, better sort of motivations for uh, the the narrator, more interesting uh, interactions with the narrator. And one of the things I'm picking up there is for the player to have a bit more agency. Well, in that absolutely. The proceedings. Yes, because that that's a game where, and that's part of what makes it a novel or a short story, is that you are not you're not doing anything. Mm-hmm. The only things that you really do are things that the narrator tells you. Stanley Parable is like a choose-your-own-adventure with a snarky narrator. Yeah. The Beginner's Guide is a choose-your-own-adventure with no choices, which is a book. <laughs> which <laughs> is, at, at which point, the idea... One of the things that I think is the nature of video games is that you have a player. Yeah. Y- you are uh, a part of the proceedings and making... Us- one of the most common definitions of the game part of it is that the player is making choices are um, there any, are there any choices to be made in the beginner's guide um at this point i would actually answer that unfortunately i have to answer that question with something else that you haven't seen uh because i would compare that side of things with dear esther which is another one of these types of narrative driven games it is also a game where you cannot you don't make much in the way of decisions. Um, the the way the game goes is you're on an island and you walk around. And as you sort of look around at things on the island, uh, a narrator sort of, and it might be you, it might be someone else, but there, there is a voice that is sort of reading letters or talking to somebody. They're, they're dear Esther. And as you're going through, a narrative kind of emerges that isn't necessarily the most literal. 
And it's also not necessarily the exact same thing on each playthrough. Like, different sort of sim- symbolic elements in the dialogue will change. Or certain other, like, positions of items that you can look at on this island will change. Um, and the narrator is talking in ways that might be describing you as you're going through things. Um, but I would say one of the big differences between the beginner's guide and Dear Esther is that Dear Esther does play more into the strengths of a sort of video game interface for a narrative where even though there aren't too many choices that you can make there, aside from I can stop and look at this more closely or I can go or I can go backwards and, and things like that. Um, it, Dear Esther makes your point of view, sort of your perspective in the proceedings, a part of things. It um, Because if Dear Esther, say, you're comparing the Stanley to Parable to like a 20-page a short story – if Dear Esther were a 20 page short story, it would, it wouldn't quite have the same immediate feeling. It wouldn't feel like you're the one exploring the island and trying to figure out who's talking. Uh, sort of the, 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 the scope of the island and exactly the, it, looking at the island raises more questions about what's literal and what's figurative. Um, which I find interesting. I'm not necessarily sure I like the game, Dear Esther, but I, I find it a more interesting and engaging experience than the Beginner's Guide. I mean, I, I, I still found the Beginner's Guide probably a bit more interesting than you did, but I totally understand all of your criticisms of it. And I think that uh, uh, Dear Esther, while still having very little agency for the player, still uses... It, it, it's It's an example of using the video game as a medium for a different kind of storytelling, even though there is, as I said, very little agency for the player. Well, how long does a playthrough of Dear Esther take? Uh, about an hour, I think. And b- before the end of that hour, have you already discovered that things are changing around you? Um, Or do you have to play through it a second time to start to discover that? You would have to play through it a second time to... to see that uh uh like elements of narration have changed because they would just be the one way the one time and a different way a different time gotcha because that's one of the things that's one of the issues that i have with uh the beginner's guide is i think you could the other thing that i think is frustrating about that is i think you could tell that entire story so much more quickly and that's where it's like well if you're gonna do that story if you're gonna take as much time as the beginner guide guide does there, there should be something more interesting going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're going to tell the story that you told with the beginner's guide, tell it efficiently. You know, it's like um, as a performer, I've been in films where I look at the film and, you know, you don't know the whole film from your performance in it. So you see the rest of the film when you finally see it and you go, wow, there's a whole lot of fat in this movie that needs to be cut out. <laughs> there's, wow, that whole character, I don't even know why they're there. They, there was one, sh- they have four scenes and there was really only one shot that really added anything to the movie that they needed to have in there. Huh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. And, and that's how I sort of feel about the beginner's guide is that if you're going to tell the story, you know, everything needs to have a purpose. 
And it feels like there's a lot. Well, obviously, the if you've ever played the beginner's guide, there's a lot of repetition built into it. Why? Well, okay. If I want to interpret why that repetition is there, I can't really do that because the narrator tells me why. And that gets boring. So I need the opportunity. There needs to be something that makes me think that there might be something that like, what if there's a note in the game? What if Coda is leaving you notes in the games that the narrator can't see? That would be awesome. Or like you could find something that the narrator never noticed. And because the narrator is entirely pre-recorded, then he wouldn't, the narrator wouldn't respond to it, but there could be a thread there that you can follow that the narrator doesn't realize rather than some sort of subtle um, thread that, that, I mean, currently there is a bit of a commentary about the, um, sort of toxic effect that the narrator has been having on Coda's oh. design choices. But again, that's something that's ex- more or less explicitly stated. Yeah. And, and t- you know, they talk about the, the sort of tension between Coda and the narrator, the narrator mm-hmm. talks about, but, but you have to care about Coda. Mm-hmm. Like, the only reason to even care about Coda is there are only two reasons to care about Coda in that game, the way it is structured. One, you personally, the player, find the games that you are encountering interesting, but they're not that interesting. Two, you like the narrator and you therefore are concerned for the narrator's friend. The narrator isn't interesting. So you need to either make us like the narrator, make us like the games, so and therefore like Coda, or You've got to give us something else. And it would be pretty fascinating if the, cause the narrator responds to some of the things that you do. I don't think it's all pre-recorded. I think the idea is that you encounter certain things and then when you encounter certain yeah, things. Yeah, that I, I know that happened once on the, fr- on like the second level, on like the second little cause, thing. Cause you can, cause you can look around and then he says, okay, let me, let me tell you how to do this. Yeah. It's something like you, he can you can either hit a key to go to the end of a maze, or you can travel through the maze yourself. Right. And the narrator reacts to that, but I don't think the narrator reacts to anything else you do. Wouldn't it be awesome if the idea is that the narrator is talking to you based on what you go through, and like the narrator is watching you walk through the game, Mm. but there are things that pop up, like notes from Coda, that the narrator cannot see. Wouldn't that make for an awesome game? Wouldn't that like you're basically like Coda's like, okay, you know, if you walk around this sign and we'll look at the back of it, I can talk to you, but the narrator can't see it Mm -hmm. or, you know, whatever, you know, whatever it is, you know, there's like little things that pop up that for some reason. So there can something like the way the game is presented that uh, like there shouldn't I interpret it that there shouldn't be direct sort of interaction between Coda and the character, like specifically to the player. Um, but something in there to to make a not necessarily overt, but discoverable dissonance between earlier on between oh, Coda absolutely. and the narrator. <laughs> absolutely. Because otherwise well this is one of the problems that I think narrative structures have in general these days is that you have to care about somebody, right? You have to mm-hmm. care about there has to be a reason that you're engaged. And sometimes the reason that you're engaged is that you hate everybody and you want to watch what happens. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Or, or you, 
you know, there, there are movies like The Last Seduction where the main character is, is a horrible person and you watch it and you keep waiting for something to go wrong and waiting for something and they get away with it, you know, or the player, same thing, you know, the bad guy, quote unquote, bad guy gets away with it. Um, and it's still interesting because there are other things that you care about. There's other aspects of it. And so you're following the bad guy in some of these stories. But the thing is, you still care about the good guy, even though you're watching them lose. It's like watching a Greek tragedy, you know, Greek tragedy. You care. You usually care about the, the hero, but the hero's not going to win. The mm-hmm. hero's that's because it's a tragedy. The hero's going to die or be blinded or, you know, wh- whatever horrible thing is going to happen to them. Um, but you care. You care about, oh, this is not good. You don't want to see the horrible thing happen. But it's not because you're not sitting there watching it and going like, yeah, I don't care about Oedipus. I don't care about Jocasta. I don't care about any of these people. No, on some level, a production of, of Oedipus has to make you care about these people or what, you know, Hamlet. If you don't care about Hamlet, it's a really crappy play. <laughs> you know, if if you don't like or are not interested or somehow engaged by the character or the portrayal of Hamlet, that is a wasted, you know, however many dollars you spent to see it and however long they cut the play to be. Mm-hmm. It's just you're not getting any of it back. Whereas <laughs> whereas if Hamlet is interesting and engaging and you are curious about him and and. As he's written, he can be funny, dynamic, you know, he could be interpreted to be practically an action hero, though more an inaction hero mm-hmm. um, is how he approaches it all. But if you don't like Hamlet, it's a crappy ass play. Yeah. If you don't like, I mean, Coda and the narrator are the only two characters in the damn story. And if you don't like either of them or don't like what's going on between are not engaged by what's going on between them. What is the point? Hmm. So when you get something like the Stanley parable, there's this dissonance between what you're doing and what the narrator is saying. That's hilarious. Hmm. It just, it just, it makes you want to play more because you want to make that you are an active participant because you are making the narrator do things, say things. And that is fun. Oh. It's, it's like when you're a kid and you poke your, you poke your mom, you poke your dad, you push the boundaries, you push the boundaries. Oh, the narrator is mom. The narrator is dad. I'm going to push the boundaries. See how frustrated they get. And that's the fun. And that's where in that particular game, the writing is really good because they wrote, they did a good job of writing the narrator in such a way that he's funny. So that's what I really found engaging about the Stanley parable, but found is one of the aspects that I found lacking in the beginner's guide, which I always want to call ready player one. <laughs> <laughs> Although ready player one, uh, I, uh, you would, I'm sure you would say is a much better narrative than the beginner's guide. Ready player one is an excellent narrative. I mean, <laughs> that's a very fun book and it just, it's engaging and you get involved right from the beginning and, it's got one, it's got a lot of different levels on which it's working because I mean, it's written, you know, you have the real world and then you have your, uh, virtual world that is practically the real world. Um, and so it's, I find that whole 
narrative to be fascinating and fun and engaging. Whereas the beginner's guide, you just go, okay, all I had to, I mean, the beginner's guide, you could play that. You could play that game with one button, Hmm. tap the button, tap the button, tap the button. In terms of the level of interaction that you have. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's just like a button that says, take me to the next point. Mm -hmm. That's all you need. I mean, now, I think what is it? Mouse driven because you walk a bunch of times and you're walking. Yeah, mouse. it's the it's the mouse to look, WSAD to walk, and you know a couple other little things like hit the button to get to the next thing. You click on a couple all... things, and there's a couple of dialogue trees that don't. I like there's a prison dialogue tree that might have the most significance, but uh, oh, that's right because there's the prison games family in that. Yeah, yeah, but those weren't interesting either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, the most interesting thing about that game were the moments where uh the narrator said, "Oh, take a look over here." And there's a like the structure of the game environment gets peeled away uh-huh. and you're looking at the background of the gaming environment. That's yeah. those like and there's only like 3 of those moments. Those are cool. Mm-hmm. Because if for no other reason than what you're looking at is engaging and beautiful. Mhm. And that's really interesting. And that's one of the nice things about the Coda games is most of them, you as you go through them, the artwork in them is actually quite nice and detailed and interesting, but it's static and boring. And that engages you only enough to go, oh, look at that. Done. Now I'm moving mm-hmm. on. And that's all it takes. Or that's all it, uh, all the more it engages you. Whereas, you know, uh, what's that game we were playing? It was on... The PS was on the P- I can't even remember what system it was on. The racing game, Race for the Sun. Oh, yeah. Uh, Race the Sun. Race the Sun. Not a terribly complicated game, but the, some of the artwork in it w- was really engaging. You know, the, the scenes, the sort of, um, bonus rounds where you're seeing the sun in front of you and stuff like that is. Yeah. It's, cool. it's very, it's very simple, but it definitely has, um, it, it it does a lot of good work with what tools it gave itself. Exactly. Whereas the uh, <laughs> the thing about the beginner's guide is you have actually some really beautiful stuff, and does it's like, well, what what was the point of of coding all of that beautiful stuff? Mm-hmm. It doesn't go anywhere. Um, and like I said, it does it does bring up the idea of what the nature of video games is and what the nature of narrative is. And if that was their point and that's what they wanted you to do, great. I just wish they had done it more efficiently. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, to, to, to kind of branch off of this, um, uh, to kind of uh, separate ourselves from uh, uh, your sort of uh, tearing up of the beginner's guide from your point of view. <laughs> Uh, there are other things I would like to discuss. So, um, another game, uh, along these lines is one that I, I took a look at called, uh, Gone Home, where there, there are actually several very interesting things about this one. This is another narrative driven game. Uh, and the premise is you're a 20 year old girl who was returning home after being uh, like on a backtracking across Europe for a year. You get home and, you know, oddly enough, the entire house is completely empty. There's like a note on the door from your younger sister and all this stuff goes is going on. It's like it's, it's a dark and stormy night. And at the very beginning, 
the game almost looks like it's going to be like some sort of haunted house, like there's going to be something uh, supernatural going on. But that kind of never happens. And it's just you going through the house, finding things, reading things. There's like these audio... uh Like you find certain things that trigger audio from your younger sister. And you, it, it feels like at first the narrative is going to be, uh, you, you the player, like trying to figure out what's going on in this haunted house kind of a situation. Cause there's stuff in the narrative, uh, uh, and some of the voiceovers and some of the other stuff you see about, like, this is the psycho house or something. And there's like a Ouija board is involved at, at one point. And there's various other kind of like horror movie tropes going on as you go through but as you continue and uh what it turns into is you're actually just sort of piecing together all the stuff that you can find to see what's going on with your family and in particular it's a, a sort of a coming out story for the younger sister where you're not even really the protagonist the story is entirely around the younger sister sort of not necessarily realizing but starting to express um herself as a lesbian and um it's it it um it uh, i would have to say that the player does have agency because there it, it's not necessarily like puzzles that you have to find in fact apparently if you know your way around the game you can actually just clear it in under a minute <laughs> <laughs> but there's a lot of stuff to find and there's a lot of actually little pieces of evidence that you can find that relate to other plots going on with the family where, uh, and apparently the creators of the game have verified this, like, um, the uncle abused the, f- uh, the father in some way when they were young or the, uh, uh, there was marriage problems between the parents, but they're working on reconciling it apparently. Mm-hmm. Um, because okay, you can so, find so here, here you're looking at a situation where they've developed a very intricate and detailed background world, right? Yes. And you, the the active agent, the player, are discovering all of these things, right? Or you have the opportunity to discover bits and pieces of these things, yeah. Which is very similar to her story, and I think that's the thing that's most engaging. Is if it's a treasure hunt, let it be a treasure hunt, right? Yeah. And, and if we as the player find interesting stories to be valuable, then if you've given us bits and pieces of an interesting story, that's the treasure and we will hunt it. We will go looking for it. Yeah. In, and, uh, uh sorry. No, go ahead. The, uh, um, and this is another case where, um, I, th- I think Gone Home and Dear Esther were by the same people, um, but uh, Gone Home has a lot more um, interactivity, whereas in Dear Esther you just walk around in Gone Home, you have to like uh, move things to be able to find things. You look around, there's like notes that are kind of half under something else. You have to find keys to get to other parts of the, the house. Um, and there's, like I said, there are certain things you'll find other things. There's items you can pick up that you may not, you don't have to pick up. You may not notice it. There's, um, implications that you can grab from items like the, the father of the family 
had written a couple of novels uh many years ago and his father wrote this kind of very lukewarm congratulations about um you know it's a momentous occasion the first book of yours to get published but uh uh, I think in that letter at the end, there was something about you can do better. So it's kind of clear that there was kind of some um, uh, uh, lack of respect from the grandfather to the father. And like right next to this letter, there's a, a picture of the grandfather that's like face down on a table because, you know, the father wasn't necessarily happy with that uh, <laughs> reaction to his work. So there, there's elements like that that you can pick up on to sort of fill in gaps of what's what's happening in this family. Well, and that form of dysfunction isn't one where you – I want to back up for a second. In The Beginner's Guide, by making Coda and the narrator be friends, according to the narrator, they're trying to build in this idea of concern and somebody that you're going to be concerned about. But they don't do anything to earn it. Well, in it sounds like in Going Home – You've got uh, a sister and you've but you've also got the idea that you have come home and you, the character as the player, want to come home. That's that's a, a something that you want to do, but it's not there. So you want to dig this stuff up, right? You want to find these things out. And in a way, it's almost like you're as a character, you've got amnesia because you would think that the character would already know a bunch of these things, but you, the player, do not, which is kind of fun, right? And and that was part of the point of the, the character coming home to have been uh, in Europe for like a year. So there's a lot of family developments going on. That like, have happened since. Yeah, like when the player was in Europe the the family moved into this house so there's a lot that's happened that the players missed out on Mm -hmm. and that's and that's cool and it engages you just from the standpoint of going home for a character or whatever for you as a player that's an easy easy motivation that's one that we're into why is coda not publishing more games that is not an easy motivation to sell. <laughs> and, and unless you're unless you're targeting your entire audience to be industry insiders. But even then, mm-hmm. wouldn't the industry in, insider need to be interested in the games? Like it's like being asked, you know, I, I'm not even going to come up with a great example of this, but uh, you, I don't know, like if there's a generally ridiculed game designer. And somebody were to ask, why haven't they done more games? Nobody's going to care, right? Yeah. You know, it's like, um, it's like, why hasn't Michael Bay done more movies? Nobody cares. <laughs> and the sad thing is he does do more movies, which I don't understand, but whatever. You know, there needs to be something to engage the, the player, right? And the simplicity of going home is going to engage you right away. And the fact that nobody's there turns it into a mystery. This mm-hmm. is a mystery that you and now you, you have that's your hook. And 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 even even the nature of the game is a bit of a mystery at first where uh like I said there's weird little occult elements you're there at like 1 a.m. uh and there when it comes to the end of the game and like I said there's spoilers here if if you want to play Gone Home stop listening and play it. <laughs> 
because I'm about to blast the ending. Um, in the end, uh, like you, you get to things where like the, the like the game is also a period piece. It's set in '95, uh, so the the um, sort of homosexuality as, a, aspects of it take on a a different sort of urgency, immediacy, and severity than they would if it were set now. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, the uh, the don't ask, don't tell policy was was an, was an element of it. Okay. Um, just just for one point of an example. But there's a lot of like friction between the sister and the parents over stuff. It was uh, one of the one of the notes you get were like she was expecting the parents to be mad, but instead they were just in denial. And so there was there was a bunch of you know minor depressive elements. The the other girl was going to go off to join the army was planning to, so they were like, so I'm never going to see you again, kind of a thing. And so, for example, there's one point where you go into a bathroom and there's kind of red splattered in places. And your first, like, this, it's really hard for me to explain quite how you get to this point. But the story really presents itself as this is leading up to an unhappy ending. Right. So you start thinking, like, you see red, you're like... Oh, oh man. Somebody, did she, somebody's dead. Did she slit her wrist? Yeah. You think, but like, and this is actually to the game's credit. Like, if you're paying attention, you haven't come to this conclusion yet. You see that and you think, oh man, did someone do something really bad in here? Um, but right next to the bathtub is a bunch of red hair dye. So you're like, oh, okay, okay. Um, uh, but still, the game itself really feels like it's, trying to push itself towards an unhappy ending, you really think you're going to uh, find the little sister having killed herself or something. Like Everything about the atmosphere of the game, from my point of view, seems to try to shove it towards some, something bad happening. Maybe well, you, not you a suicide, said, but something. You had said horror. You had said it had horror elements and whatnot. Well, yeah. is that true in the elements that you discover as well? I mean... But, or is that are those elements simply, you know, skeletons in the closet type of elements? Um, I, I think the best way to describe it is when you put them all together in a story, they seem to point that way, but there's still very mundane explanations for everything. Gotcha. Like the hair dye, or you know. Well, I would think it would be fun if if the hair dye and whatnot. You know, it would be fun if you get a bit of a mystery and like, oh, nobody's here because the younger sister ran away and they're looking for her. And, yeah. You know, the hair dye is what she used to help her run away or, you know, the parents, yeah. you know, instead of being in that, denial, tried to put her in lockdown or whatever. I mean, yeah. there's all sorts of things. There's a lot of And, and a lot that. of that was kind of in there, too, well, cool. uh, because because you're going to and that's one of the things that gives it a lot of tension is because you're going through the house trying to figure out what's going on um, because no one's home. There's like a few televisions are still on. Uh, there's like a severe weather warning um, happening. So it looks uh, like people just disappeared. Yeah. The, a bunch of electron, like if you notice, there's a bunch of electronics that are missing. You know, it'd be a really cool element in a video game like this one is if there is a clock. And I don't mean, I mean, like, if there's, like, some limit to how long you can play it, like, okay, everybody's going to get home soon. 
and you have to figure it out beforehand. Like, and what you figure out determines how the game ends. Cause if hmm. you figure out that, Oh, my sister came out and my parents didn't like it. She's trying to run away and blah, 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 blah. Then when everybody comes home, you then have a different response that you can choose to their arrival. Like, Hey, I'm in support of my sister or Hey, I think I'm important support of my parents or whatever. Yeah. But if you don't discover all of that, the ending is completely different. <laughs> so all you've discovered is the stuff about, oh, my, my dad published a novel and my grandfather wasn't all that interested in it and yada, yada, yada. And then the story becomes about how you respond to your father when they, when he comes home. Hmm. But, and this is where it would get really interesting, you get to the end and seeing how the characters and whatnot respond to your response might lead you to go, wait a minute, I missed something. Mm-hmm. And now I have to go back and try it again. That would be engaging and interesting and based on the characters. And that would be hopefully based on the fact that you care about the characters at that point because you've been digging up information about them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that would lead to it, an interesting form of replaying the game and knowing that, hey, it's only going to take so long. <laughs> yeah. And the yeah, other- that's one way to go in, in this in this particular game, like. All of those other subplots are stuff that's there that, like you were talking about, uh, it being a treasure hunt. And those, those other plot lines associated with the family would be the treasure that the players are out there to find. Yeah. Um, but the, the, again, the coming out story for the, the little sister is by a wide margin. The main. The main, the up in front. It is the point of the story. And as I was saying, it really feels like uh, it wants to have a dark ending. Um, but in the end, what, what happened was like the other girl was going to go, you know, enlist in the army and at the, at the very end said, you know, no, I can't do it. I got to call, uh, um, uh, the, uh, she calls the sister and it's like, let's run off together. And this is actually one of the things that makes it feel a lot kind of like a horror story because the beginning, pretty early on, like right in the, in the main foyer of the house, there's an answering machine and there's two just, sobbing messages from a female voice saying, please be there, please pick up. And at one point I had found like evidence that the uh, parents had gone off on a retreat out in the wilderness and there's a severe weather warning. And I started wondering, are, are the parents like desperately calling the younger sister for help to get them out from the like mm-hmm. flooding or something? But no, that, that was the, the other girl calling to try to get attention to you know say let's let's just run off together and that's why all the electronics are gone is because the younger sister just swiped a whole bunch of stuff of value from the house so they could sell it and run off and kind of <laughs> have their own life together or something and so it's it it's you know not they're, they're not exactly you know the best way to start out or something and it's kind of a you know foolish impulsive young love kind of a thing but in the end it's it's a uh uh, hopeful and uplifting kind of ending, which is not how the rest of it really felt like it was going right. to go. And that aspect of it, I don't know if you've seen this, but the first season of 24, um, again, everything's on the table, uh, for spoilers. First season of 24, the, uh, Kiefer Sutherland's wife gets killed. And at first, when they were making it, uh, they were thinking that he would save his wife. But, uh, in the process of, you know, making, producing the first season of 24 they realized that no this story really really doesn't want to have that kind of an ending so mm-hmm. 
Like they shot him saving, you know, filmed him saving his wife, but it was just kind of going through the motions at that point because everyone knew that that wasn't the right choice to make for the right. story. And there are some stories that demand that. And it would be interesting if there was, uh, like I was saying, and this goes back to the more game aspect than the narrative aspect is if there are different potential endings as depending on what you've discovered by the time everybody shows up and comes home. The other thing that I thought would be interesting about having a clock on the game, you said the TVs were running. Mm -hmm. If like one of them was just on a test pattern and the other one was repeating like severe weather alert. Wouldn't it be awesome if there was a video game where there was certain information that you could get from a TV or a radio, but only if you were listening to it at the right time. <laughs> like, like it wouldn't be, in, uh, it obviously couldn't be information that's essential to quote unquote, win the game because you might miss it. But if, if there's a TV that's on and it's got a program, like <laughs> a full hour's worth of TV up there and maybe it's a commercial that comes up a couple times or something like that. But so that it's not just going to be there once, or if it's a news program, you know, they could refer to it, refer to things multiple times. But nonetheless, wouldn't it be fascinating if that was, if it's a game that has a time limit, such as, okay, the parents are going to come home at a certain time, then there's only so long that you're going to be in the game. You know, that's the case. And then, so you're exploring, 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 but you also know that, hey, you would notice at some point that TV is now doing something different than it was before. What is it? What is that? Hmm. And I have this, that happens to me in video games all the time. If there's a TV or a radio that you can, like Grand Theft Auto, I listen to all the radio stations because, <laughs> because it was so fascinating. I, I remember, I think it was GTA 4 where I was listening to all, all the different, all the different advertisements on it and stuff like that. I was like, okay, this is hilarious. You know? Yeah. I was, I was going to point out GTA as you were describing this. Like GTA 5 also has, like they, they, ha- or, um, not just GTA 5, but they also have, you know, television stations that you can watch. Exactly. And it wouldn't it be fascinating if, because those are examples of, in GTA, things that are in the background, you don't necessarily have to see them or hear them, but they're entertaining if you do. Yeah. And this would be something where it's not just entertaining, but there's actual information in there. And I think that would be interesting. Yeah. I mean, wouldn't it be interesting if you could find information like certain Certain of the the Easter eggs, well, I can't remember what the packages were in the GTA games. Some of them there were packages and whatnot that you could find, so you could get different weapons or things like that. Um, wouldn't it be interesting if the information about them was on the radio? <laughs> like you just happen, like to, you could get a news update about something's going to be dropping here or there or something. You know, if you, hey, there's this concert going on, and if you go. <laughs> You know, everybody gets a free gift, you know, type of thing, <laughs> you know, or it's bobblehead giveaway day at the at the, you know, local sporting event. Um, but wouldn't so that's it, what they, it, they, they have something uh, almost like that in uh, Fallout, at least in Fallout 3. I haven't played uh, New Vegas or 4, but in Fallout 3, there's uh, a radio station that plays uh, with that has a DJ that will give sort of news updates and. It's it's not proactive. It won't tell the player necessarily to go somewhere, but the the broadcaster will uh, report on what you've been up to. <laughs> That's fun. Yeah, I like that. So he'll describe you in different ways based on uh, if you've been doing good or bad things, and tell like a certain sort of main narrative line 
events mm-hmm. that you've just gone through, he'll report that you've done this. That's very cool. Well, that's one of the things that I like about certain forms of narrative, because and this is a little bit outside of what we've been talking about, but there are certain um narratives that have the one wonderful effect of creating a reputation for their main characters, right? So as you go through certain video games, your characters become more and more powerful or more and more whatever. And so they develop a a reputation if the video game is well constructed. Mm-hmm. It comes to a point at first in a video game, if you're walking through some new world, you are encountering people who have reputations and you're getting stuff from them. Well, as your character gets more and more powerful, shouldn't your character have a reputation and other people be coming to you for things? Mm-hmm. And there are some – the TV show Farscape does a great job of that in that you have this group of characters who at the beginning are just are just struggling to survive. By the end of the show, which is four seasons and a miniseries long – they have a reputation where people hear about them and realize that it's them and they respond completely differently. Mm. Oh my God, you're so, you're John Crichton, you know, it's what? (laughs) And, and the characters are aware of the fact that their reputation is growing, not necessarily accurately and make use of it. Mm -hmm. And that is something that's really, really fun that you can, you can only really do that well with a long form narrative, such as a TV series or an extended video game, not a video game that you can play in one sitting. Mm -hmm. But that is another version of what you can do with a narrative where you have a character that's changing. Whereas, you know, the beginner's guide, it feels like both characters are totally static as well. That's the other problem with the Mm -hmm. beginner's guide. All you're getting is a snapshot. Basically, you're getting a snapshot of what's going on between these two guys. And this guy is just and the narrator is just saying, this is how we got to this snapshot. Whereas what you want is something dynamic that's moving and changing that you have can therefore have uh, some sort of effect upon. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a great book uh, called Shakespeare, the invention of the human. I think it's called the invention of the human, the invention of the human being by Harold Bloom. And he talks about Shakespeare inventing the way we think. Because Shakespeare's characters, when they deliver monologues, didn't do what characters up to that point had done. It used to be characters would deliver a monologue, and basically what they were doing is reporting on the situation as it existed at the time. So I'm giving you a snapshot of what's going on. Shakespeare's characters, according to this Harold Bloom, were the first characters to commonly start from point A in a monologue and get to point B by the end of it so Mm -hmm. that it was not, it was not, Hey, this is a picture of what's going on. It was, this is what I'm thinking. This is what it means. And this is what I'm going to do as a result type of thing. There's a development that happens in the monologue, similar to uh, similar to certain uh, musicals in the theater. Some musicals are songs are just a snapshot. And if you were to take the, the book away from the music, and just read the read the book, you would be able to make sense of the plot because everything's there. There are other musicals where the songs are essential for the plot. And if you take the songs away from the plot and you just read the book, you would go, I, I have what, what's going on? This makes no sense because there are major components missing that happen in the songs, whether it's somebody falling in love or you know, the songs are going from point A to point B. And that's one of the things that you need 
in your video game, I think, for it to really be engaging. In her story, in Gone Home, and in the Stanley Parable, there's a point A and a point B that you get to in the one... The beginner's guide. <laughs> Good God, wow, I really have a... I really have a... That, <laughs> I, I really do it's, think that it, means- it, it, it's a practical demonstration of how little impact the story had on you. Exactly. Um, well, and, and that title doesn't necessarily mean much in comparison to that story. But that's also true. But the story doesn't go anywhere. It's like, I'm going to tell you about this guy, Coda. I've now told you about this guy, Coda. <laughs> really, I mean, it's like, it's like, I'm kind of concerned because he hasn't published any video games. And you get to the end and yeah, and I'm still concerned because he still hasn't published any video games in a while. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so another point I wanted to make is because at the, at the end of the beginner's guide, you have this whole like, there, there is a reveal. I mean, it, it, it doesn't, the the word you used before dynamic i think that's that's an important one cuz while there is a reveal at the end of the beginner's guide that you know he's doing all of this stuff because he told he like i mentioned it was it's kind of revealed that uh coda felt that the narrator had sort of a toxic impact uh influence on him and he just wanted to separate so um there there was a revelation by the narrator that that he may not be as good a person as he thought he was with respect to, you know, Coda and these games. But as you were saying, that, that was there the whole time. There wasn't any real character development with respect to that. And that's sort of part of what makes, as you said a while ago, that makes him an unreliable narrator. Mm-hmm. Um, another game that I think has some very interesting narrative stuff. It's not a narrative driven game. It's actually a first person shooter, but the storyline in it is really interesting on several levels. It's called Spec Ops The Line. And here's, again, we're going to spoil the hell out of this one. Spec Ops The Line is kind of the apocalypse now of video games. It's also based on uh, Heart of Darkness. And in this game, like, you are the main character. Your perspective is essentially the narrator. And... You, as the narrator, are unreliable in a first-person shooter where you don't narrate. <laughs> um, That's pretty cool. Yeah, the idea is, like, you're sent... Instead of being sent up the river in a jungle or something like Heart of Darkness, you're being sent into... It's a more contemporary setting. Like, there is these, you know, crazy super sandstorms in the United Arab Emirates, and the United States sends in, you know, military to try to, you know... Uh, settle things down or something like that. Um, the point is like everything is going to hell in the place you're going to, right? And there was a decorated commander that had gone missing or dark or something. And you and two, uh, squad mates of yours are sent in to try to retrieve him, figure out what's going on. And. As you get in, you like people are shooting at you and stuff is just kind of going off the hinges and like there's a, a a plot where it looks like sections of the United States military are going rogue and they're just becoming warlords in the area and maybe the commander you're being sent to retrieve is, you know, the head of them and in in the end it turns out the guy you were looking for is dead, I think. It, it 
I played it a while ago and some of the details are a bit foggy, but it like there's one point where you're launching white phosphorus at what you think are rogue members of your own military. And when you get down there, you realize that you just incinerated a bunch of civilians. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Um, and like you in, you're not a narrator, but there are, you know, um, non-interactive sequences where you're talking and so forth. And your squad mates are kind of saying like, this is going too far. And you're like, we had to, we had no other choice and so forth. And about this point, I'm thinking, I don't think I'm a good person. <laughs> uh, and there's also points where like at the very end, when a whole bunch of the nature of things is being revealed to you, like you go back to certain rather key moments in the game. Uh, like, um, there was a couple of, uh, guys that were strung up and you hear the commander telling you, like, you, you have to kill one of them. You have to pick. And when you look back on it, I mean, they were strung up, but they were already dead for a while. And the two guys that are with you are saying, it's like, what's he doing? Cause like the, the, there's a firefight after that. And apparently there was never actually a firefight. You were just looking at these two strung up bodies and you zoned out for a bit. <laughs> like you have gone completely crazy. And there, there's bits where like the reality in the game is breaking. Like the game starts with this sort of helicopter gunship shootout chase. And it happens again really late in the game. And people are saying, didn't we, you're saying, like, didn't we already do this? And the guys with you are like, I don't know what you're talking about. So. Interesting. Like, you are the narrator and you yourself are unreliable. That's very And cool. I think, yeah, it's, it's, it's a really interesting well, it, sort of experience that it leads the player through. Well, where you're a- like, I, I don't think I am a good guy in this story. I don't think I'm totally sane in this story. Yeah. It's it's um it's got overtones of uh Scanner Darkly. Mm. Uh which is uh, I I haven't seen the film but in the the book through a Scanner Darkly uh Philip K Dick has written a story where you've got somebody who's uh an undercover narcotics agent and he's in a house and he thinks he's trying to get um, he's trying to get a distributor who's in a dealer who's in, he thinks lives in this house, but the drug that he is chasing down the name of which I'm not going to recall can sort of cause psychotic breaks. And because he's taking it because he's in this house, he ends up it, by the end of the story, you realize the drug dealer he's chasing is himself. Huh. <laughs> you know, it's like, Oh, Whoa, weird. Or there are other narrative tricks like that if uh you've ever seen um sunset boulevard the entire story is narrated and you get to the end of it and you realize it's being narrated by a dead man mm. like you've watched this character and at the end you're listening to the character as his body is being fished out of a pool and you're like wait wait a minute <laughs> i've been listening to this guy this whole time this is weird <laughs> mm. so you know, and there are other there are other stories that are films where they have versions like that, but it, it's not quite that extreme. If you've ever seen um, uh, da, 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 Double Indemnity, the main character is narrating his he's been shot and he's narrating his story into a dictaphone 
he's basically trying to tell a guy that he worked with, hey, we got the better of you. So long. Except he gets found at the end because, of course, he's been he's been shot and he's just sitting there bleeding. And that's why he can't get away. But there's a lot of different narrative forms of this narrator. The narrator call it the narrator surprise. I don't know. The, but the unreliable narrator is is very interesting. Is always an interesting one when you realize that you can't trust the person who's telling you stuff. Um, and that twist on it in the Spec Ops game sounds really, really, really engaging and interesting. Um, though perhaps not morally all of that, <laughs> all that wonderful, <laughs> given the way they've uh, framed it with that particular character. Um, but there's also the you know is. It, the question of where your narrator comes from, because there are books where uh, or or films or whatnot where you have a narrator and then suddenly you realize, oh, the narrator isn't just there. It's not just a voice that exists in the Shawshank Redemption. We we have the narrator and we don't know who they are until quite right at the end. Right. If, I don't know if you remember the movie when. When the black janitor jammed up the gears of the of the clock, and he oh, turned... you're thinking of uh, you said the Shawshank Redemption. Oh I think no, I'm the sorry, Hudsucker I'm sorry, Proxy. The Hudsucker Proxy. Yes, sorry. There's <laughs> we know who the narrator in the Shawshank Redemption. <laughs> in the Hudsucker Proxy, you have the you have the guy who's jammed up the the clock and stopped time. And he turns <laughs> strictly speaking, I ain't never supposed to do this. And then suddenly you realize, oh, that's the guy who's been the narrator the whole time. That's been able to see everything. And and there are a lot of movies that do that or or, or books that do that. There's a, a great book called The French Lieutenant's Woman by John Fowles, where the, it's told in, from a third person perspective until about 50 or 60 chapters into it, where suddenly the narrator is a character in the story sitting across the uh, a train carriage from his main character. And he's debating what to do with his main character. And you're you're like, what? Because there's a sudden shift from uh, from third person singular talking about the character to first person singular. And you're it's it's very disconcerting when that happens in the in the narrative, because you haven't heard that other than, you know, in the quotations when somebody is talking about themselves and it just throws you off. And Mm -hmm. That book then, of course, goes on to have three different endings as well, which is also really cool. Um, and the unreliable narrator comes into it versus versus, you know, the significance of each different potential ending of that particular book. Um, but those different forms of approaching the narrative via what your narrator is like, all very interesting. None of them <laughs> really exist in a compelling way in the beginner's guide <laughs> and that and it keeps coming back to that <laughs> well i mean that's the that's the thing that got me going on this whole concept of narrative format in games is the fact that there's such a difference between i mean it's it's almost like there's a linear development from her story to the stanley parable to the beginner's guide <laughs> except of those three the most narratively interesting is her story. And I think the last one made was the beginner's guide. It's like, it's, it's like a de-evolution of <laughs> narrative structure. In, yeah. In, I, th- I think the Stanley parable was first. I'm not sure which came first, her story or the beginner's guide, but, 
but it's almost as though like if you were to take those three different stories, three different games and look at them all, I my thought would be in terms of the complexity and interest of the narrative form, it would be, oh, well, obviously the beginner's guide was done first, then the Stanley parable, then her story. That's what I would think as and because mm-hmm. you know, her story is, you know, it looks very primitive, but that's a choice. Right. Um, and so but. In terms of its engagement and how you're searching, it's much more interesting, obviously, than, in my opinion, than what you get in the beginner's guide. Right. Which, which is just kind of bizarre that it would go that way. And, and I, I, I find it really weird that the same people did the Stanley parable in the beginner's guide. I mean, and I'm, I'm perfectly willing to admit that maybe there's something really interesting and fascinating about the beginner's guide that I've totally missed, but I also don't particularly care. <laughs> you know, I, mean, I, I, th- I think, I think the main thing that, that, that there is to miss in the beginner's guide is just being a part of the games industry. I feel like a lot of your criticisms, um, ring true. There, there's a, there's interesting stuff to be seen there, but it could definitely be presented better. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Although I, I I do think that um, this does kind of go to show some of the you know each different medium for telling a story has its own different strengths and weaknesses. Where say you know in a book you can inspire the imagination of people to fill in certain gaps. Certainly in terms of visuals, you can have like creative turns of phrase to describe certain things that are happening. Um. And strictly speaking, you don't have a, a time limit. You don't have, you don't have to pare things down if you don't want to, or if it doesn't make sense for the story. You can just keep going and going as many details or subplots as you want or feels necessary. However, uh, from my point of view in a book, if you're going to have an element in there, it could be mentioned tangentially. It could be buried under something else. Uh, it, but somewhere, somehow, something has to be in some way explicitly stated in the book. Whereas, say, in a movie, um, there can be something that's, like, it'll be in frame, but it doesn't have to have anything called to it. Mm-hmm. Say, there's a meaningful look between two characters that could speak volumes, and you as an audience could interpret that, or you may not even notice it. A great example of that is in uh, Rear Window. Uh, Hitchcock talks about a shot of Jimmy Stewart looking out the window in his wheelchair. He's using his binoculars, and there's a shot of him looking at, I don't even remember what the first shot was of, and, and the shot back of him, and it's just sort of like an amused look. And then shot of him looking at a young woman practicing dance or something like that. I can't remember what she's doing. And then the shot back of him apparently is the exact same shot, but now he's look, looks lecherous with the same look. (laughs) It's the same, but your interpretation is different because of how things have been situated. And that's one of the things that, you know, you have the power to do in film is how you situate things, you know, what's in a really well, structured film everything that's in the frame is planned now Mm -hmm. not everybody has the time or ability to do that when they make a film but that's what you're hoping for is that everything that you're looking at 
is what you have intended to be there. Um, and therefore it means something on some level, but that also is, again, you have to trust the entire crew, right? So you as the director, you know, have told the cameraman that this is the angle you want to come from the cameraman, but you've also told the props and the sets people what you want or are looking for and the costumers and the actors. And so everybody's got to get everything lined up so that, Oh, when the actor looks this way, it looks like they might be looking at this, but they're actually looking at that, you know, or whatever, whatever the effect is that we're looking for. Right. But it relies on so much. What I think is interesting about video games is all of the narrative possibilities exist. You've got all of the narrative possibilities of a novel. You've got all of the narrative possibilities of a film. You've got all of the narrative possibilities of the interaction of the reader, watcher, whatever you want to call it, player with the game environment itself. And you get to choose in ways that people who, well, it's not quite as true these days with CGI and whatnot, but you get to choose things. Oh, oh, oh my goodness, I'm sorry. <laughs> Don't be breaking your mic. <laughs> um, but you get to choose everything in the environment, and nothing in the environment is there unless you choose it in a video game. Whereas if you're shooting a film, well, we're outside and we can't really remove this building. Well, I mean, people do these days, but, um, you know, that tree is going to be there or I can't, you know, I can't avoid the fact that we're next to the street, you know, mm -hmm. whereas in a video game, you choose whether or not a car goes by or what have you, if you there, want. There's, to. there's definitely, uh, I, I was going to get to video games and, and one of my main points about video games is that it presents a much more immediate sensation of say you know engrossment or engagement to the player or the audience because they have agency in what's going on you know you can look around you can feel yourself more absorbed in the world itself because you are an agent in this world and some of the problems with the narrative from my perspective as you're saying it has all of these options of a novel or a movie or something for the narrative uh, the problem is because the player has agency, they may not be interested in partaking in that same narrative. The more open you make uh, the game, the more freedom and agency you give the player, the more opportunity they have to um, basically throw a monkey wrench in the story as you want to tell it. But that's just it. That's the that's a, a good this is where I think people in the video game world don't understand what they have available to them. So David Bowie said uh, about 15, 20 years ago that he thought he foresaw the coming of the digital music age. I mean, he saw that coming. He said, oh, that's where we're going. And, and he was talking about the fact that he saw artists interacting with their audience in a whole new way where and it's true nowadays right because artists who aren't you know so far beyond the stratosphere of normal mortals that are still interacting i mean interaction on twitter and whatnot artists getting ideas and talking to their fans and things like that it's much more immediate than it ever was or ever could have been and his awareness of that gives is what um well, he was aware of what something that gives artists opportunities that they don't have now or didn't have before, I should say. 
which is the ability to cater what they're doing to a fan base or what have you. Well, the thing about video games is they have the power to make use of all this different stuff. And one of the things about her story that I think is interesting is the narrative is so intricate and complex, and the rest of the game is so simple and primitive. They've highlighted the fact that the narrative is complex and that the understanding of it is difficult. Most other games are trying to do everything well, and therefore nothing gets done terribly well. Mm-hmm. And, I, I can see where I can see where you're coming from there. And a really but... good, I think, a really good video game would be, you know, yes, you've got the graphics, yes, you've got the, you know, the gameplay, but you've also got the narrative. You've also got the. Uh, the fact that the player is a functioning participant um, and you want to push, if you can push all of those elements at the same time, then you get to a point where, yeah, the player can throw a monkey wrench into the story that you're telling because you're not the one telling the story necessarily. You are Mm -hmm. telling it with the player. That's the Mm -hmm. plan, but that has to be the plan. And if it's not yeah. the plan, then, yeah, the player can throw a monkey wrench into the whole situation, and you fail as a storyteller. Recording. Yeah, so you were you had just uh, left off saying about how um, if you, as a developer, um, if the player throws a monkey wrench into things, uh, then you failed as a storyteller. Well, only if you haven't taken that idea into account. Right, right. So, so that's that's kind of. I, I was I was just resetting things. I'm going to follow up with a point here. So, uh, I'm going to get started again. You ready? Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm going to get us back in. Uh, one moment. Okay, that actually brings up kind of a, an interesting idea. Um, if um, if that's kind of the storyteller's role in things, to be able to, if you if you can't sort of. To look at it to say that if you aren't able to um, either uh, compensate for or uh, uh, what's the right word I'm thinking of here, sort of into it or 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 understand what the player is going to do or to guide the player correctly, then uh, to uh, uh, get to the story points that are necessary for this narrative, then th- that means that you failed as a storyteller. I find that interesting. Well, I, I think the more, more interesting idea is even that the ultimate evolution of a game narrative would include all the options for the player in that and would be able to incorporate a lot of them into the narrative so yeah. that even though, even though you are making choices that aren't necessarily going to help the plot, the narrative ends up subsuming those and making use of them. I think that would be a really, I think that would be very difficult, but I think it would be really, really cool. Oh yeah. That, 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 that's one of the, the, the option that I said there to take into account everything the player can do. And that's, Mm. that's where things get really difficult because as I was saying before, the, the kind of the more agency you give the player and the more, that's the more chance that you give them to throw a monkey wrench into things. And, the more things that you have to write about. So if you give someone unlimited freedom, you know, just the amount of options you have to write, uh, it just becomes staggering. And, uh, the, the complex, not just in the writing, but being able to have 
sort of the entire world properly reflect your choices as a player can become very, very difficult. So if you have something like, say, an Elder Scrolls game, a Skyrim game, where there are just a, a, a tremendous wealth of options in front of the player and a lot of little stuff. If everything in that world, which there, if everything in the world were completely tied together, it would, that would just be a, a, a Herculean task. And, and in those, in those games, there's a lot of stuff to do, but there, it's, it's all in a lot of little bite sized things. But again, the more agency you have the, that you can give the player, the more options that they have to say, I am not interested in this story. I'm going to go forge my own. Mm-hmm. But, and I think the ultimate would be to create a game where that's possible. Yeah. And, and that would definitely be very interesting and it's definitely be very, very difficult. Right. Um, I, I, I also think that to, to kind of, uh, wrap up on a, on a few other thoughts that, um, I mean, we, we've kind of, run the gamut of a few things about, you know, what, what, uh, what kind of stuff you can do with the narrative. We haven't talked too much about sort of some of the other, like other, we talked about Spec Ops Align, but one of the common criticisms of other modern first person shooter games is that they're very sort of set piece driven. And there's stuff that you can do that's interesting them. Um, but, uh, a lot of them is, is it, it kind of feels a bit more like a roller coaster ride sometimes. Or you can also have narrative like, say, the Metal Gear Solid games where, you know, there's a lot of cool stuff that you as the player can do. And the, the storyline, the narrative is completely, pretty much completely out of the player's hand. It's, it's, I've described those games as like an action movie where you play the action sequences and then the rest of the movie <laughs> plays. But, uh, there, there's also games like, uh, Shadow of the Colossus. I just kind of be remiss if I didn't mention this one where that game, there's, you know, there's only, you know, a dozen or so colossi. So that's all the combat there really is in there. And the rest of it is in sort of at building atmosphere, building your tie with, with Wander and the, the main character Wander and his horse Agro and just sort of going on this journey with them. And that's one of the things that that game does really well. Um, just sort of, uh, putting the player in Wander's shoes and understanding everything he's going for. And actually, that's another game where in the end, it's pretty ambiguous on if you were doing a good thing or a bad thing the whole time. <laughs> <sighs> okay. I think that, uh, kind of covers the, the range of, uh, what we wanted to get through today. Well, you know, we uh, we went on for a bit. Yeah, this might be. This is probably one of the uh, the longest, probably the longest episode of the Behind the Line Radio. I'm not exactly sure what's going to be after I pare it down, but um, yeah. Uh, so let's close this off. Um, I'll I have a, a quick story for the end here for uh, uh, sort of industry anecdotes. Um, there was. One, one time, uh, in a large testing team, uh, one of the members of this testing team apparently was a bit disillusioned about what it was like to actually be in game testing. And as the story goes, at one point he stood up, he's like, I need a smoke break. And he stepped out and never came back. And. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. 
So we, we'd often joke that this is the longest smoke break ever. And I think it, uh, for a while we were like, how long has this smoke break been? Three weeks. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. So, so this is not a story about me. This is a, a friend of mine I know who, uh, was on, uh, I can't remember what soap opera it was, but he, uh, he was this sort of Svengali character. Um, he was uh, a fortune teller and he'd been written into this soap opera and he was sort of controlling this woman's decisions. And he was only on the soap opera for about a week or so. I can't remember, but, but he talked about the fact that the character that he was sort of controlling, he was living in her house and stuff like that is still on the show. And you know, that, that house is still on the show, but he talks about the fact that his last exit on the show is he goes, well, I'm going upstairs and he goes upstairs and that's the last anyone ever saw of him <laughs> on the show. And in his mind, that character still is up those stairs living in that person's upstairs bedroom, which I just think is kind of hilarious. It very much reminds me of the longest smoke break ever. Yeah. I think that also happened with the, like a brother on happy days, like oh. <laughs> as- ascended the stairs and was never heard from again. Yeah, I think that happens every now and then on TV. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of what happens if you have a, like, the actor has to leave or something, whatever. Yeah. All right. Any any parting words you'd like to give? That's all I got. All right. Haven't I given enough words already? (laughs) Yeah, my last article was short, so we we compensate with a long podcast. There you go. Okay, so thanks for joining us today, Bill. You're welcome. All right. So, if there's anything you'd uh, like to hear me talk about or see me write about in Behind the Line or Behind the Line Radio, feel free to write me at kinetic at enthusiacs.com. That's K-Y-N-E-T-Y-K at enthusiacs.com. Look forward to seeing any suggestions anybody has. See you next time, anybody. Next time, anybody? No. See you next time, everybody. Behind the Line Radio is presented by Enthusiacs.com. For more podcasts, Let's Plays, articles, videos, reviews, and more, visit us at Enthusiacs.com. Also, send us a comment on Twitter, at Enthusiacs. View us on YouTube, channel Enthusiacs, and like us on Facebook, Enthusiacs. Thank you.